Hey, thanks so much for worshiping with us. Please grab your Bible or tablet or phone or whatever you're using to follow along with. Uh, we're going to look at a text this morning around this idea of won't you be my neighbor. And so before we dive in, uh, we're going to say our creed together. Yes, I'm encouraging you to say it out loud. Yes, even those of y'all who didn't sing along with the song, let's say this together uh, so that we can just set our hearts in the right direction. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. And the truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Awesome. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And truly, I'm praying that God will answer that prayer that we just prayed, that God would change our hearts. Every time we open God's word, that's his, his goal and his mission and his intent through the work of his spirit is to change our hearts. And change our hearts in such a way that it changes our lives, changes the way we live, changes the way we view the world, and changes the way we neighbor. So Luke chapter 10, we are going to begin in verse number 25. It says this, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want to hit pause just a second. I first heard the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we're heading this morning, when I was so little that I've known it my whole life, right? And I've always thought this lawyer is kind of a jerk. He stood up to test Jesus. Who do you think you are? Order in the court, Mr. Lawyer, like, back off. But I, I want to hit pause for just a second. As I've studied this with a fresh heart this week, I've seen this lawyer through different lenses. This lawyer was standing up to genuinely test to see if Jesus was teaching good theology. We don't think he was standing up here to trip up Jesus. That's not what it means to test Jesus. Now, in Matthew chapter 22, when the dude stood up and asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He was genuinely trying to trip Jesus up. That's not the nature of this guy's heart being presented here. As a matter of fact, because we're not used to going to synagogue and I'm not Jewish, I don't realize that this is actually really typical. It would be typical that the rabbi would be seated and somebody would stand up and engage in a question with him. This is really normal. And he's testing to see, hey, is what you're saying true? And here's the deal. With the tsunami of voices being thrown at us right now, that's actually a really healthy thing. We need to make sure that what we're hearing is grounded in truth. We're supposed to test those things. If I start teaching you that you should send your tithes to me so that I can buy a new plane, you should test that and go, mm -mm, no, we're not going to do that. P.S. You're fired. Like we're supposed to test stuff. If I start teaching some wacko theology that doesn't align with God's word, man, you're supposed to confront that in me. So this guy's making sure that that God's word is being handled right when he says he tests him. And I'm chasing that whole rabbit to say, man, I feel like we're really quick to judgment nowadays. We are really quick to throw someone into the bus and to assume the worst about them. And I realized I've assumed the worst about this attorney that I've never met my whole life. <laughs> and can we just slow down and realize that more often than not, there's more to the story than we see on the surface. But that's not the focus of what I want to talk about today. That's just a little parenthesis in the midst of our talk today about neighbor. So he asked Jesus this question, by the way, which is a great question. How do I know that I can have eternal life, right? And Jesus responds with a question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
Jesus answers his question with a question, which is really typical for how a good rabbi would handle that moment. Historically, a good rabbi usually taught by asking questions and then listening to the answers and only responding when something was really off topic or affirming the stuff that was spot on. So historically, a good rabbi was a better listener than a talker. Like, couldn't we just, like, park there, like, end scene, cut, <laughs> like, hello, we need to learn to be better listeners than talkers. Good grief, I think that's missing right now. That, that we would reserve the expert opinion that, that we just think the whole world needs to hear. And maybe listen more. Maybe the heart of Jesus is the heart to give somebody else an audience. Maybe the heart of Jesus is to understand that they have something they want to share. And let's listen. Let's hear Let's treat him with dignity. So Jesus asked this guy, listen, what do you think? How, how do you think the law teaches this? How do you think that you read that? And he answered, this lawyer answered, by quoting the Shema, the text of Scripture that our whole purpose statement and vision statement as a church here is, is geared around. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind. And then he quotes from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is pretty cool, right? Because we read that negative encounter in Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus asks, what's the great commandment? And he gives these two commandments as the great commandment. And so this little part of my brain thinks, does this guy know that? Did he hear that that's how Jesus answered it? Because it said they were silenced at Jesus' answers in Matthew 22. So as like fame of that moment spread, or was this guy there? I don't know. Either way, good answer, bro. Good job, Mr. Lawyer. <laughs> yeah, love God with everything that we are and we have, and love our neighbors like ourselves. And Jesus answers, uh-huh, <laughs> yeah, that's correct. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. Like, not just saying you won't die, like you'll have life. If you truly love God and love your neighbor. Verse 29. But this lawyer desiring to justify himself, like he wants to know that he's spot on. And so he said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And that really is a great question. Because Jesus used this phrase all the time. One another. Love one another. The people who came after Jesus and, and wrote letters to the churches talked all the time about one another. One another. One another. So who's one another? Is that just the people that do life with me? Is that just my physical neighbor, like the people who live next door to me or the guy across the table from me? Like, who is my neighbor? It's actually a great question. And Jesus responds with, hey, let me tell you a story. So many of you who are closest to me make fun of me because often I will just tell a story about something uh, in, in my answer to a question or in my engagement in conversation, and I kind of get dogged on that a whole lot. But listen, that's like the only area of my life I'm like, Jesus, give me a break here. Uh, Jesus told stories because it helps make sense of stuff. Like we understand things better when a story is connected to it. We, we remember it better. And so Jesus was notorious for telling stories, but often he told parables, meaning he just flat made up the story. Th this didn't actually happen. Now, some of you have accused me of doing the same thing with my stories. Like, dude, that's not how that happened. You completely made that up. But Jesus is totally making this up because he's trying to answer the question by painting a picture. 
And here's the picture. And by the way, if the picture seems really familiar to you, if you've known the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan your whole life, please don't zone out or check out. Because I'm telling you, I've learned a lot from relooking at this story that Jesus made up. So here goes Jesus diving into this story in verse number 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that means nothing to you and me. I've never been to Jerusalem, and I've never been to Jericho, let alone if I traveled from one to the other. It doesn't mean anything to me. But to the people who are hearing this made-up story, they all went, yeah. <laughs> like in a way that we wouldn't, right? Um, so if you're from Florida, you know that driving across I-10, like through Tallahassee and to Pensacola, it's basically like watching the road grow as you're driving. It never ends. It's just straight and mindless and never-ending, and it's miserable. And so if you say to, to a Floridian, I had to drive across I-10, they'd be like, oh, dude. Maybe you're from West Texas, and you're like, dude, I had to drive across West Texas. And your answer is like, oh, dude, right? Maybe you had to drive east from the Metroplex, and you had to cross through Louisiana. You had to go by a mouth guard because your teeth were being chipped because of how bad the roads are in Louisiana, right? And so you're like, hey, I had to drive across Louisiana. Dude, yeah, rough. That's the same thing that happened in this moment when Jesus went, hey, a man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everyone was like, Ugh. And, and the reason they went, is that was a rough journey. It was about 18 miles, right? And so the average pace of people today, that's about a 20-minute mile if you're walking-ish, a little more if your legs are, are, are a little shorter or if you're a little out of shape, maybe a little quicker if you're in better shape and legs are longer, whatever, about 20 minutes, right? So it's a solid six-hour journey, most of a full day while the sun's up. But it's not just that it was a long journey. It's a really difficult journey. It was super windy on really narrow roads that had huge drop-offs next to them. Like at some places, they say up to 300 feet of a drop-off. That's a drop-off, dude. And FYI, there were no guardrails, right? Like it, it's a sketchy road. And so it's not just that it's a, a long day's journey, and it's not just that it was a difficult journey. Because of the winding nature of it all, there were these caves and these rocks that historically robbers used to be able to hide behind, and they would just take people out one by one. Like they would just wait for people to travel by and be exposed, and then would rob them. So it was really dangerous. Here's why I think that's an important little history lesson for us. Jesus starts off the story by saying, for us to get from where we are to where we want to be, we have to be willing to walk through some difficult places. I believe that's incredibly true for our culture today. For us to get to where we want to be, we've got to walk through some difficult spots. And I love that Jesus leads the way. I love that he starts there with the difficult conversation. So it resonates with us. And sure enough, this made-up story, this made-up guy, right? Verse number 30, he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the, the, the tempo or the order in which Jesus says this is really important. So again, if we can try to think about the context that Jesus tell, is telling this made-up story, to a Jewish ear, being stripped is worse than being beaten and left for dead. It's worse than being robbed. Because in a Jewish mind, to be stripped of one's clothes was to be stripped of one's dignity. 
That's why the scriptures make a big deal about the fact that Jesus was stripped when he was hung on the cross. Jesus felt shame. Jesus felt the loss of dignity. And so Jesus, before he talks about the physical problem or the economic problem, he talks about the invisible problem, which is the deeper problem. And that is a lack of dignity. Being pressed onto someone who's just trying to get from point A to point B. I love that Jesus sees that. And I love that Jesus starts there. Because what he's going to show is that can't be ignored. If we're going to answer the question, how do I love my neighbor? Well, then who is my neighbor? Then we have to see the invisible part. We have to see the heart that's longing for justice. Even if the exterior looks okay, even if that person's not making a big deal about it, there are wounds that if if we walk by, we will miss them. We'll ignore them. And we won't enter in. So, Jesus calls out the dignity here and the physical pain and the economic ruin. He's been robbed. Verse 31. And I love this. Now, by chance, a priest was going by. What do you mean by chance, Jesus? You're making up this story. You literally created the priest who's going by. So how is it by chance? Anyways, whatever. By chance, a priest was going down that road. A priest, right? The religious leader, the minister. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Yes, even spiritual people have been known to pass by. Even ministry leaders, even ministers have passed by. Because sometimes it's just easier to pass by. Oh, that looks messy. That looks complicated. I don't know what to do. And here's the thing. It's so amazing that that God has softened my heart of all people in the story towards the priest in the last couple of weeks. Because when I studied this from a Jewish mindset, I realized I didn't understand the context of what Jesus is teaching at all about this priest. If a priest was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, every person hearing that story would understand he was sent on mission. Like he wasn't on vacation. He had a job to go do. This priest was on mission, and maybe he was so focused on the task at hand that he didn't stop. And the reason that's an important distinction is I think a lot of Americans are not engaging in some of the difficult, painful conversations of our culture right now because we think we're too busy. We think what's next on our schedule is too important to stop what we're doing and sit down and have hard conversations. I'm telling you, God has revealed in my life during this whole COVID quarantine, I don't care how bad you hate it, I've tried to have a heart to learn in this moment, my life moves too fast. If I really want to know people and love people and hear from God, I've got to find a way in the midst of this American culture that's all about productivity to hear people and hear the God whose image they bear. This priest maybe was just too busy. Maybe he was in too big of a hurry. Now, we'll never know because there actually wasn't a priest. Remember, this is a made-up story. But maybe he was just too busy. Maybe he was just too focused on his little world. Maybe sometimes we're the one who passes by because we don't know how to help. I don't know what to say, so I'm going to let somebody else engage, and I'm just going to keep walking. Maybe, and I I want to talk here for just a minute, maybe we can say this priest was intimidated because he didn't know exactly what to do, right? 
So if I were to tell this parable in a modern context, which I think Jesus would be okay with me doing because it's a made-up story. I believe very truly Jesus literally did tell this story, but I think it was a made-up story. So I think he'd be okay with me making it up a little bit to fit us. Ready? Here you go. So the minister saw the man laying on the road, and he saw other ten other people standing by with their phones out videoing him to see what he was going to do, what he was going to say, how quickly he would respond, and exactly how he would handle the situation. And they were very ready to put him on blast if he did anything they didn't agree with. Right? So let's look at the priest through that lens. Maybe he was frozen with the tension of a conversation that everybody seems to have an opinion, even though many people with the loudest opinions don't seem to be actually engaged in conversation. I believe we have an epidemic right now, and I just want to say this with a loving heart, of of keyboard warriors on every side of every issue, from COVID to race to politics to everything else in between, I'm seeing these people who like to hide behind a keyboard, and they like to blast everybody else. And specifically, I would say this about those in the issue or the conversation of racial reconciliation. I'm seeing people who are really proud of what they have to say coming from people that don't have a single friend who looks different than them. They don't have a single friend who votes different than them. They don't have a single friend who believes differently theologically than them. They don't have a single friend whose culture looks different than theirs or whose way of life is different than theirs. And yet they know how you are supposed to change the world. Man, I'm just telling you, there's a problem. But I love that Jesus in this picture is is painting the picture that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what excuse this priest may have had. It wasn't a good enough excuse to keep walking. No matter how legit, no matter how difficult the fear might have been, Jesus is clearly painting the picture that he expects the priest to stop and get his hands messy. So there's another dimension to this that I've never thought about before. So remember, the hearers are thinking, because this wasn't written to Americans in 2020, the hearers are thinking that priest has been sent out on mission. And if that priest were to stop and help that man who's dying and bloody on the side of the road, I've never considered before, he would have then become ceremonially unclean. He would have had to stop, turn around, go back to Jerusalem, spend seven days of going through rituals and ceremonies to be considered purified again, before he could go back out on his mission. And by the way, if he didn't stop and do all that and he just continued on to Jericho, if they would have found out in Jericho that he was doing ministry after having helped that guy, according to the law, he would have been stoned to death for doing ministry while he was unclean because he was dealing with a a person who was bleeding and who was uh, theoretically dying, right? So there was a lot of risk on the part of the priest that I've never considered before. And Jesus is paying the picture that our call to neighbor isn't dependent on whether or not it's easy. It's not dependent on whether or not it's convenient. And so he passes by on the other side. He walks around. Now, in the Jewish mindset, again, there's three levels of people who serve at the temple in Jerusalem. Number one, the priest. They're like the head ministers, right? And then you've got the Levites, who are the helper ministers. And then you've got just Jewish lay people who take their faith really seriously and they serve in some kind of capacity in the temple. In our context today, it would be like 
the lead pastor, the assistant pastor, and then like the deacon or the home group leader or the leadership team guy or whatever. So like there's the the Levite or the priest rather, and then the Levite, and then they're expecting this Jewish lay person. That's what they are assuming would come. And sure enough, Jesus introduces the next uh, player onto the scene, verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, same thing, passed by on the other side. And the picture being painted here is an idea that I don't think I've considered before. So the assistant to the priest came behind the priest and saw the wounded man there and would have thought, well, the priest passed by. So I guess it's okay for me to pass by too. That historical context is important because of this. What Jesus is teaching in this little really quick sentence here is the failure of our leaders before us is no excuse for a lack of response on our part. Whether the generation before us failed us, whether the the leaders we think are failing us, we still have a responsibility to how we will neighbor, to how we will enter in, to how we will engage. But this Levite perhaps thought, well, the priest didn't stop, so I'm going to keep going. And again, the audience is expecting the priest walked by the other way and the Levite walked by the other way. Now the Jewish lay person is going to walk by the other way and Jesus shocks them. Verse 33, three words, but a Samaritan. And their minds went, right? The tension between Jewish people and the Samaritan people was beyond what we can understand. They hated, hated each other. Specifically, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans, truly believed that they were lesser human beings than themselves. There was this long, painful history of racial division, of religious hostility between one another, of political betrayal and heartbreak, and of cultural distance uh, differences and, and divides between them. We even know in Scripture that to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, a Jewish person would go two miles out of their way to just not even step foot, step foot in Samaritan territory because he didn't even want to see a Samaritan person. That's how much hate there was between their cultures. And in the way that only Jesus can, he makes the enemy the hero of the story. Because that's what he loves to do. He takes the Samaritan what would have been the villain to the people hearing him, and makes him the hero. Back to verse 33. So a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the guy who'd been beaten up and left for dead, stripped of his dignity. And when he saw him, he had compassion. See, it first started with a heart change that eventually changed what he did and what he said. So in the economy of Jesus, we see a consistent story being told. That was told throughout the entire Old Testament, all the patriarchs, all the prophets. And then it was the same picture was painted by everybody who came after Jesus throughout all of the church letters. And that is this. Jesus believes in heart change first that always makes its way out. That first he changes our hearts in such a way that we can't help but do something. Which is why we ask God, change our hearts. Because if he does, he will change our lives. And we read this Samaritan, this made-up Samaritan, had a heart change. He looked at this person that hated him, and he had compassion on him. In such a way that he had to do something about it. Verse number 34. 
he went to him. Wow. The guy who was hated went to the guy who hated him and showed compassion to him. That's how upside down the economy of Jesus is. He went to him seeing because he understood what it is to have a lack of dignity. He understood what it is to have shame. And he went to him and bound up his wounds. And then it says he he poured oil and wine on him. Pouring on oil and wine. Remember, this is only a six plus or minus hour journey. So it's not like he's got a huge cart and whatever and tons of food. He probably gave him all the oil and all the wine he had in this made up story. Then he set him on his own animal and did something really risky. He brought him to an inn. So again, try to think like a biblical time Jewish person. A Samaritan walked into a Jewish town with a super beat up and bloody Jewish guy on his animal. Like he didn't just enter in and get his hands messy. He didn't just come close. I mean, he he risked his own comfort zone, his own safety to help this guy. And I love this phrase. He took care of him. Like he had compassion that turned into care. He took care of him. Verse 35. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is a full day's wage. Like, not just what it would take to stay there for a night. Two full day's wages gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. I'm not just taking care of him now. I'm taking care of him as he heals. And when I come back, if you need more, I'll take care of that too. What a costly expression of love. And now back to the rabbi method of asking questions. Jesus asks, verse 25, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answered and said, the one who showed mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In this story, we have Jesus, in this made up story, giving us yet again, like he did with every story he ever told, A glimpse of the love of God. Because Jesus again and again and again is saying, I'm offering the world a love that's better than any kind of love the world can offer. Jesus' love crosses cultural barriers. Jesus' love crosses racial barriers. Jesus' love crosses economic barriers. Jesus' love crosses political barriers. Jesus' love crosses religious barriers barriers. Jesus' love gets close. It enters in. It gets uncomfortable in a way that is costly. It actually costs something. Jesus' love is not just heard. It's also seen and experienced. Jesus' love enters in. And to claim to be the church of Jesus, I want you to hear me, church. If we aren't being the church to a stranger, then we're not actually being the church. Like if we're only the church to the people that we know really well and are easy to love and that we get along with, that's not really what the church is. That's an element of the church, but that's not all she is. If we aren't being the the church to somebody who looks different than us, then we're not truly being the church. If we aren't being the church when it costs us something, we're not truly being the church. If, If we only love out of convenience, The Bible says, well, that's what people who don't believe do. 
if we aren't being the church when it's uncomfortable, then we're not actually being the church. I mean, yeah, we're being the American church. <laughs> I'm just not sure that we're being the church of Jesus. The church of Jesus enters in. I love how one pastor worded it. He said, we got to step into the awkward in order to get to the awesome. We got to step into the awkward to get to the awesome. We got to sit down and have the difficult conversations. We got to listen. We have to be willing to, to take the first step when we don't know what that step's going to turn out to be. Yes, it, it's risk. Yes, it involves action. I, I think Mr. Rogers' question is beautiful. Just think it's really misguided. Here's what I mean. I think the question, won't you be my neighbor, is a beautiful question. It's just the wrong question. Because Jesus already answered that question when he created humankind. In the economy of Jesus, every man and every woman and every child who bears the image of God is my neighbor. The question is not, will you be my neighbor? It's, will I neighbor you? Will I love you like a neighbor? Will I treat you like a neighbor? Jesus has spoken. You're my neighbor whether you want to be or not. I need to ask myself, how am I doing at that? That's the, the message of the story of the Good Samaritan. As a matter of fact, we hear it in the words of Jesus. After Jesus tells the story, in verse 36, he asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? That's not the question the attorney asked. The attorney asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, who proved to be a neighbor? Right? Meaning it's not about what happens to me to define who's my neighbor. It's about how I'm expressing the love of Jesus. It's on me to neighbor. And so, it, yeah, I love this attorney. I love his question. It's a good, good question. But I'm sorry, dude. Instead of asking who's qualified for me to love, I think Jesus wants me to examine the quality of my love. Because I believe every person that bears the image of God, which is every person who's ever lived or ever will live, is qualified to love. The only question is, have I, have I experienced the love of Jesus in such a transformative way in my heart that it changes how I live and how I love other people who bear the image of God? Now, I'm almost done. Hang with me here. I said earlier that only Jesus would make the villain the hero of the story or make the enemy the hero of the story. Ah, that's only kind of true. See, this fake Good Samaritan that Jesus made up for the story is not actually the hero of the story. The hero of this story is the hero of every story. His name is Jesus. See, the hero of the story is not the made-up Good Samaritan. It's the very real good Savior. And he wants to be the hero of your story, too. He wants to be the hero of reconciliation in your world, in your life, in your relationships, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, too. Because he's the hero. It's all about Him. And I want to be real careful with how I say this here. I keep hearing this message being proclaimed by influencers and by politicians. Hey, America, we can do better. And I got to tell you, my experience with humankind is, I don't know that we can apart from a Savior. We aren't the solution. Politics aren't the solution. Even community initiatives aren't the solution. 
they're only useful in the hand of a good Savior. They're only reconciling in the hand of the reconciler. He's the one who heals hearts and changes lives. And so at the end of the day, it's turning to the love of Jesus that is the hope for all of us. And then living that life out. Because according to the message of the gospel, if we experience the love of Jesus, it will change us and then will spill out of us. 100% of the time. Our job in living out the Christian life is to stay open to the Lord. Hey, are you living out your faith in me, Jesus? Because if he's not, we've turned our lives in on self. We've turned our lives in on our own political views, our own cultural views, our own feelings, our own life experiences. And Jesus has purchased us so that we can experience the joy of it being all about him. All about what he wants to do to change the world. Because here's the thing about Jesus. He also was stripped of his dignity. He also was wrongfully beaten so that every person who's ever been marginalized or abused or abandoned can know what it is for somebody to feel that pain. And he enters into that with true healing. And he doesn't just pay two days wage. He paid the price for that redemption and that reconciliation with his very was costly for him too. By the way, and just like two denarii was more than enough, the price he paid is more than enough too. It is the hope. It can change the world. And so I ask you today, first of all, do you know for sure that you've experienced the love of Jesus? His friend, I want you to know he loves you. He even laid down his life for you. And if you don't know for sure that you've experienced reconciliation with God, I ask you, would you please click the link that says, Can We Talk? We would love to engage in a conversation with you about how you can know for sure that your heart's been changed. My second question is, if you believe that's happened to you, are we living out the story, the very true story, of the Good Savior in the world in which we live? Are we entering into the difficult places, having real conversations with real people, one human being at a time who bears the image of God at the time, in a vulnerable way, in a risky way? And are we listening? Because the love of Jesus always enters in. And that's the love he's called us to. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time in your word. Would you please change our hearts, change our lives, And through those changes, one person at a time, would you change the world for your glory? Jesus.